I'm Rob Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International. Thank you for joining me as we begin our study of the fifth Feast of the Lord, the Feast of Trumpets. I want to tell you something about myself. I love a good mystery. Now recently, my wife and I were watching a lecture on mysteries of fiction literature, and I realized there are several categories of mysteries. The category I like is called the comfy country puzzle mystery. Now these contain minimal violence, usually occurring in a rural village, especially English villages, and their solution requires a process of logical investigation. Now understanding my liking of mysteries, you'll understand why I like this next feast. While not a criminal mystery, it is a mystery nonetheless. A mystery I call a comfy puzzle mystery. No, it does not take place in an old English village. Rather, it takes place on the world stage and involves the nation of Israel in a way that will affect everyone in the world when it is fulfilled. In the scriptures, the Feast of Trumpets is only described by three brief verses in Leviticus and six additional verses of instructions on how to observe the feast in Numbers 29. As a result of this brevity in the Bible, both Jewish and Christian students of the Bible call the Feast of Trumpets the Mystery Feast. Please join me now as fellow detectives to solve this mystery. Please turn to Leviticus chapter 23 and follow with me as I read verses 23 to 25. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, and holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire, unto the Lord. As we begin solving the mystery of the Feast of Trumpets, we need to review where this feast fits in the feast calendar. You'll recall that the first four feasts or appointments for Israel followed a significant pattern with respect to their timing and the events related to that timing. For example, the order of their occurrence and the resultant historical events followed a relationship to their timing on the calendar. For after Passover and deliverance from Egypt followed the time of separation in the wilderness, which was pictured by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was followed by first fruits, picturing the entrance into the Promised Land and then finally, the Feast of Pentecost pictured the removal of the enmity between Jew and Gentile and the beginning of a second major spiritual harvest. Now, looking at the Jewish calendar, we notice there is a four-month gap between the Feast of Pentecost and the next feast, the Feast of Trumpets. I believe this four-month gap represents the period of time between the completed four historical events of the first four feasts and the three yet 
unfulfilled coming prophetic events for the nation of Israel. Thus, this four-month gap represents the present church age, that's Acts chapter 2 Pentecost, until the rapture. Because I believe that God follows patterns, and the first four significant mountaintop national events or feasts establish such a pattern, we would expect that the remaining three feasts also will picture three major national mountaintop events in the future for the nation of Israel. Since they are future, we must carefully compare scripture to scripture to determine what those events will be. But here, <laughs> difficulties arise, for the scriptures fail to identify any historical national mountaintop events that are directly related or linked to the Feast of Trumpets. Fortunately, a close study of the scriptures does offer insight into the national events for the coming Feast of the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. By considering the timing and historical pattern of the first four feasts in Israel's history and the linkage of the sixth and seventh feasts to a future high point in Israel's history, we conclude that the trumpets will also signify a future national Israel event. Further, we can expect that this feast event will occur historically between the past Pentecost event and the coming Day of Atonement event. Based upon this conclusion, I believe we can determine these future three prophetic events by careful study of the scriptures. It's very natural to try to link these events with the church, but, but never forget, these feasts always apply to national Israel. Since nothing relating to Israel is indicated in the four-month church age gap, we conclude that during the gap in history, God will be working with the church temporarily, setting aside national Israel while he builds the body of believers identified as the bride of Christ, the church. If true, then when God resumes the events of these three last feasts, they will involve Israel rather than the church. Many people believe God's silence on the Feast of Trumpets is because it is a church event rather than a national Israel event. Further, since it falls between Pentecost and the Day of Atonement, they conclude it must be the catching away of the church to meet Christ in the air, that is, the rapture event. But this would break the pattern God uses for the other six feasts. They always involve Israel. I believe we must set aside all preconceptions we might have about the mystery of the Feast of Trumpets, and let's let the Scripture speak. I would note that I too once held such a preconception. For many years, I believed the Feast of Trumpets pictured the catching away of church believers to be with the Lord. 
As a result of my research for my master's and doctor's thesis, I found out my preconception was totally wrong. I believe that by the end of today's investigation, you too will reject that idea. Here the mystery begins. While both Jewish and Christians can identify the four past events of the feast and can make fact-based conclusions concerning the last two feasts, the mystery is the Feast of Trumpets, the fifth feast. Because of this, Israelis, influenced by the Babylonian captivity, conceive the idea that this feast is the start of the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. But there's a problem with this. The feast occurs in the seventh month of the biblical year, not the first month of the year. Further, God declares the start of the Jewish year as the month Nisan when Passover occurs. And God tells us this in Exodus 12, verse 2, where he says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month, now that's the Passover month, shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. You see, once again, there is a wrong preconception of the meaning of this Feast of Trumpets. Recognizing these two examples of wrong preconceptions about this feast, no one can explain what it is and why it is observed with any certainty. Despite this fact, I would like to offer a possible explanation which resulted from my multi-year research into this feast as part of my thesis program. After I wrote my thesis with my conclusion, I found one other man who had also concluded as I did. That man was Lehman Strauss, a man I deeply respect as a solid Bible teacher. Interestingly, Many years later, and after uh, Lehman Strauss's going to be with the Lord, I was given one of the original manuscripts of his book in recognition of my work on the feasts. That was a real joy to me and a privilege and really confirmed to me that both Lehman Strauss's conclusion and my conclusions does fit the scriptures. So let's work together now. Following Lehman Strauss's and my method of solving this mystery. Like all true detectives, we must follow some foundational rules of detection in order to reach the correct and true solution. Thus, here are my rules for how we are going to solve this mystery. Our first rule, rule number one, use only the Bible for the facts. Now, you can use various reference tools to help you understand the meaning of words like lexicons, the grammar, etc. But no commentaries, no books written by others, and no guessing aloud at this point in time. Rule number two, rid yourself of all preconceived ideas such as those preconceptions that we discussed earlier, or other ideas that people have that just aren't based on the Bible alone.
Rule number three, allow the scriptures to overrule your doctrines. If there's a conflict between your doctrinal belief and what the scripture says, accept the dominance of the scriptures. Remember, doctrines are merely a gathering of the facts from the scripture and systematizing them for us to study. But human beings did that. The scriptures were written by God himself. Rule number four, compare scripture with scripture to determine the meaning of a passage. For we read this rule in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Note, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. In other words, comparing the scripture passages here with other passages, for they all will agree, because God wrote the scriptures. When you've done this, these followed these four rules, gather all the facts, then reach a conclusion as to God's teaching, not man. All right, let's go to our website, congdenministries.org, and you'll notice as we look at our website, we have a section called for your personal Bible study. This will take us to the blue letter Bible that is online and gives great deal of information about specific verses, words, and other tools to use for your scripture search. We're going to look up, first of all, Leviticus 23.23. And up pops the key verses of the Feast of Trumpets. First verses, verse 23, tells us, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, and holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Immediately following this, we find a reference to Numbers 29, verses 7 through 11, which is the parallel passage on the Feast of Trumpets. And as you can see here on the screen, it's primarily instructions on how to observe the feast rather than anything specifically about its meaning. So we're going to focus into Leviticus, verse 24 and 25. Now I want you to help me gather certain facts or characteristics of this feast and let's tabulate them. We begin first remembering that a feast of the Lord is an appointment. Therefore it means it gives a specific time and place for them to meet with God as the nation of Israel. Remembering now that in the future this feast will be a mountaintop event. We know that the appointment is made according to the verse in the first day of the month, that month being the seventh month. So in the first day of the seventh month, that's when the appointment is set for a future time for Israel. The next thing we notice in the passage is the word Sabbath. 
Remember, a Sabbath can be any day of the week. There are weekly Sabbaths that meet that are on Saturdays, but there are also feast Sabbaths, which could be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, any day of the week. God specifies that when this feast is observed, regardless of what day of the week it is, it will be the first day of the month, and it will be declared a Sabbath. Furthermore, God emphasizes that they are to do no servile work therein. Remember, a Sabbath is a day of which a person ceases, the meaning, fundamental meaning of the word Sabbath, ceases from normal activities and devotes the day to God. Now, our next word we want to look at is memorial. Literally, it is a zikaron, a special use of the Hebrew word meaning to remember, recall, call to mind, resulting in an action caused by that memory. Unfortunately, for this feast, there is no memory or action to recall. So here we have actually a key element that's going to help us to solve this feast. Now, in other passages on the feasts, when the memory is identified clearly, we can go back and we can gather more meaning of the feast through that memory or looking back to that past event. But there is no memorial associated with this feast. So we're going to store that in our mind. That's an important clue here for us. Next, we see it's a memorial of blowing of trumpets. Trumpets typically are used to call to worship, but as we're going to find out shortly in our study, it can also be a call of alarm when it is used in Scripture with reference to the nation of Israel. Next notice, we are to have an offering or a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord. That is, to having an offering of this nature will always require an altar, and that's going to be an important clue. For Israel to observe this feast and to eventually make that appointment with God, they will have to have an altar. Must be in Jerusalem, for God has specified that's where the altar is for worship to him to give his offerings to him by fire. Now, we also know and recall that the basic meaning of the word feast is that of a convocation a national gathering of the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. Remember, God chose the place for covenant worship and for sacrifices and formally declared it as the city of Jerusalem in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 6. Thus, we expect that the mountaintop event will occur in the future in the city of Jerusalem. That means that Israel must have possession of the city of Jerusalem. Finally, this is a covenant that the Lord has with his people. This is part of the covenant in Leviticus here. Therefore, we understand that since the feast of the Lord is part of the covenant, we learn that in the covenant, if Israel is in obedience to the covenant, observing it, they will be sacrificing according to the covenant, including observing the feasts. 
If Israel is in a state of disobedience, they must turn back to God in order to start sacrificing. You see, when Israel is either in exile because they were in disobedience to the God, or when they're in the land but not following the covenant, not worshiping, not sacrificing, they're out they're in a state of disobedience to the Lord. The only way to remedy that is to turn back to God and to begin living covenant relationship in obedience to him and offering sacrifices on an altar. So we now have seven characteristics drawn just from these two verses about the feast and how it may play out, if you will, in that future mountaintop event. Our next step now is to search our Bible for other passages occurring on or about the Feast of Trumpets that mention any of these seven key characteristics. So in our Blue Line Bible, we're going to go up here to the search, and we're going to first of all search Feast of Trumpets. <laughs> there is no verse in the Bible that uses the expression Feast of Trumpets. No matches. So that didn't really work for us. So now let's try a different search. Let's search... Let's search me Memorial of Blowing of Trumpets. And no surprise, we get verse 24 of Leviticus 23. Therefore, we know that this phrase, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, only occurs in one verse in the entire scripture. Okay, let's try another search. This time we'll just search memorial. Ah, we find that the word memorial occurs 32 times in 31 verses in our Bible. And they range from Exodus all the way through in the Old Testament up to Acts chapter 10 verse 4. So we have a lot of references that may or may not relate to the Feast of Trumpets. So we need to zero in. Uh, let's go first to our verse that we know relates to the Feast of Trumpets, right here, verse 24. And we go over to Tools. When you pass over Tools, you'll find that you have several choices. You'll have interlinear Bible cross-references, commentaries, dictionaries, all tools to help you study the scriptures. This is a very useful program. So we go to interlinear. That means it's really a comparison of Hebrew to English. There's our verse at the very top. Next we find, isn't that interesting? There's the Hebrew. Now you can start learning your Hebrew. As we move down, we come and we see there is our verse on the English. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall you have a Sabbath. Very familiar. 
we're going to go down because we remember what we're looking at is the word memorial. And here is memorial. We find that it, here's the Hebrew word for memorial, zikaron. You say, what? well, how do we pronounce that? Well, I'm not real good at pronouncing my Hebrew. I can read it. I'm not good at speaking it. So we click on the speaker and we hear. Strong's H2146. Zikaron. Zikaron. See, now you can start learning to speak Hebrew. Zikaron. This is the word memorial. We now click on the number H2146. That's Strong's Concordance that will tell us something about this word memorial. As we look down, we find its root word. You can find out what the root is. It means in the English to remember, mention, remembrance, record, or mindful, think, bring to remembrance, record. It pretty much keeps repeating the idea of a memory of something. Here's a dictionary aid, which unfortunately this program doesn't take you to, but it gives you the reference. It's twat. That's Theological Word Book of the Old Testament, a two-volume set that's in-depth studies of some key words in the scriptures. And entry number 551B will be about this word memorial. And um, it's not an inexpensive set. It's a useful study aid to you. Now, in my book on the feasts, I give some of the reference material from the Twat reference and others to fill out the definition of memorial. At this point, we're going to be kind of just sit back and leave where it is because as we look at the next keyword, it will actually feed back and help explain memorial to us. So I go back here to our basic verse and I look here and I look at the term because the term I'm really interesting is the blowing of trumpets. Well, I look at something here. I see that of blowing is one word of trumpets and holy is a second word. Well, that's interesting. There are two words, not necessarily surprising me. Where, where, how does this holy fit in? So I check its concordance and I see it's kodesh. It means apartness, holiness, sacredness, separateness, I don't see anything about trumpets. What does that mean? Well, going back here again, let's go down. I go back and I really see what it should read in the Hebrew, a memorial of blowing holy convocation. You see, trumpets isn't in the scripture in this verse. It's really just the phrase of blowing. Well, that's interesting. If I go to phrase, it tells me the verses that use this one Hebrew term of blowing. And obviously, it shouldn't surprise us. It only is used with reference to the Feast of Trumpet. Now, that's significant only in two verses. Now, let's go back and look a little more into this of blowing. We know what the Hebrew word is. We want to hear it pronounced. Strong's H 8643, Teruah, Teruah. 
Now that you know how to pronounce it, Teruah, probably better than I can pronounce it, we click on the Strong's definition of blowing. And we find out, wow, it's not just simply blowing a trumpet, you know, like playing an instrument. No, its basic meaning is alarm of war, a war cry, a battle cry, a blast for marching. It can also be for joy as in general of worship. But notice, in terms of meanings of importance, you always read from the top down. So we find that this blowing, used only in two verses with reference to the Feast of Trumpets, must have something to do with war, an alarm of war, a war cry, a battle cry, a blast for marching. Um, therefore, the trumpets is sort of understood as that means of blasting, but significantly, it's also used in the Bible of a shout, shouting, alarm, a sound, and there's our use of blowing. And only twice out of all these uses of the 36 uses of this term blowing, is it about joy. So I think you can see as we go back to our verse, clearly this memorial or remembrance will be of a shout for crying for war, an alarm. It's not really just a worshipful playing of trumpets. So that, that kind of should trigger some things in your mind. Uh, what you will do, and we're not going to do it in this video, but you'll, you ought to look up and try to see all those other references to the blowing and see what we can find. But we find a significant passage back in Isaiah. And to save some time, I'm going to just take you directly to Isaiah 27, verse 13. This whole passage, Isaiah 27, is an eschatological passage. It's a passage about the latter days of Israel. And we read in verse 13, it shall come to pass in that day. In that day is always reference to the final days of the Lord in eschatology. In that day that the great trumpet, now the word trumpet is there, the great trumpet shall be blown. And they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. What do we get from this verse? In that day, in the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord, the last days for Israel, a great trumpet is blown. In other words, a, a shout of alarm is blown. A war cry is blown, and they shall come, those that were ready to perish, shall come to worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. This is a major clue to determining the meaning of the Feast of Trumpets. Therefore, I've concluded that we have an eighth characteristic to add to the Feast of Trumpets, that it is a call to alarm, a call to march. A war cry is going to be tied in to this memorial or remembrance. Now let's do what apparently only Lehman Strauss did and I did. Let's search seventh month. Seventh month. 
Obviously, we get lots of hits. 81 times in the Bible is the seventh month involved with some event. But now, if we sift through all these verses and we find only the ones that include seventh month, Jerusalem, and offerings, those combination of three words, we, we find that there are verses in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles there's Ezra, Nehemiah, Ezekiel, and Haggai. All have to be considered. So now at this point, I would have gone through, and you can do it in your own time, and gone through it and see if you can find specific verses that include seventh month, that also include terms like Jerusalem and offering. Now, if we revise our search to first day, seventh month, now we've narrowed it down substantially. Uh, obviously, we expected to find Leviticus 23, verse 24. In Leviticus 23, verse 39, we see it is the 17th, 7th month, but notice 15th day. It's only on the first day of that seven-day feast that is a reference. So we really don't have the correct combination, so we can throw out Leviticus 23, 39. We look at Numbers 29.1, and it's what you expect. And we look at Numbers 29.1, and it's what we expect. Seventh month, first day, well, it's the Feast of Trumpets. We now come down to Ezra, chapter 3, verse 6, and it says, from the first day of the seventh month. Aha, that's one we're looking for. We look at Nehemiah 8.2. Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation of both men and women and all that could hear with understanding when upon the first day of this seventh month. Now we look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel 30, verse 20. It came to pass in the 11th year in the first month. Uh, that, that rules it out immediately. So that's just, the computer saw month and first said, well, that has to be it. So now that we've taken these five passages and we've sifted, if you will, through these, we really find that there is significant verses found only in Leviticus, of course, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So now what we're going to do is we're going to work through the path that I work through to give us a hint to the mystery. Now my solution stands on the premise that God follows a pattern. If he does something three times where each shares the same basic characteristics, then if there is a suggestion of a fourth event, it too will follow the pattern of the first three and share the same characteristics. Now, applying rule four, comparing scripture to scripture, we find fourth instance, which I believe will be the mountaintop event of the Feast of Trumpets in the future. What I want you to do at this point is to stop this video and to look up all the references which I would give to the feast. Now, in addition to the ones that we've already narrowed down here, I would like you to look at 1 Kings chapter 8 and at 2 Chronicles 5 through 7. You'll want to read those and you'll see because they're going to be very important. It's kind of a back door to the first day of the seventh month. Furthermore, in our 
next session, we're going to do a little more in-depth thinking, and I really would like you to work through this again to be sure you've locked it away so you're ready to see the next logical steps. Because this is a mystery, and I don't know about you, and I've already told you I love mysteries, I often read a novel that's a mystery twice. Or I, if I'm watching a video that's a mystery, I watch it twice. The second time through, I see how some of those early on events uh, were hints to the mystery. I would like you to go back through what we've just done, and therefore I'm going to divide this video into two parts. This is part one. Part two will then continue on, and we'll really see the significance that three times in history, Israel, on the first day of the seventh month, turn back to God in revival. Could that be the pattern that will be repeated one more time in history? An event of earth-shaking proportion. Truly a mountaintop event for Israel and the world. Now remember, this next coming event will follow shortly after the catching up of the church, after the four-month gap, the time of the church. Therefore, we will see in the next video that we could be very near to the rapture because as we solve this mystery, we're going to look at the world around us and say, you know what? We're close. So until our next session, may the Lord bless you mightily and we'll see you either here or in the air. Thank you.